and transcultural. And, and what I've noticed is that a lot of people will th- agree with the first two, though, like, yeah, that makes sense. You're a church. It makes sense to be gospel-centered. It makes sense to make disciples, the Great Commission. But what is this transcultural? What, what does this mean? And, and so I thought it might be a good idea to, to pause for a moment and take six weeks just to unpack what it means to be transcultural, why we believe it's so important, why we will champion it. Uh, and so we're doing that by walking through the different themes of the Bible to show that this isn't a new thing, this isn't uh, an addendum to the gospel or an extra of the gospel, but rather it is a direct implication of the gospel, uh, that this isn't something that Jesus uh, decided, hey, this might be really, really cool when he showed up here on earth, but rather this has always been the plan of God since the very beginning. And so we started uh, looking through the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, uh, seeing that this has always been at the heart of God, this idea of being transcultural. Then we looked at the, the poems. We looked at the Psalms to show again that they reveal of God's beautiful diversity, this idea of being transcultural. Uh, last week we looked at the prophets, uh, and that was incredibly convicting. Uh, one of the most difficult sermons I've ever had to give. Because it revealed my own blind spots. That God is about being transcultural. He loves diversity. He wants us to live in it. And so this week we turn a corner. Uh, we're now in the New Testament. And so we're going to look at three other themes. We're going to look at the Gospels. We're going to look at the letters. And then we'll finish in Revelation. And so this morning is the Gospels. To see transculturalism in the Gospels. Now again, I must define what it means to be transcultural. Uh, This is how we define it. Transcultural, a community that uh, reflects, embraces, and enjoys the diversity of its context. All right? And those words are incredibly important. It's a community that reflects, embraces, and enjoys the diversity of its context, but by the power of the gospel, transcends it and creates one new community. That's what it means to be transcultural. Another way to say it is that God is forming a family for himself from all people. That God is forming a family for himself from all people. We believe this to be true. And so this morning, if I was to title this sermon, as we look at the Gospels, we're going to look at at the book of Luke, one particular story, hopefully that it would represent the Gospels. If I was to title this sermon, I'd simply call it, or I would say it this way, a transcultural community requires a transcultural love. A transcultural community requires a transcultural love. Now, we're going to unpack this, and and I believe the only way to do so is by asking and answering the question, who is my neighbor? If we truly want to understand what it means to be a transcultural community so that we might love in a transcultural way, we have to ask and answer the question, who is my neighbor? Leon Scrump says it this way, we determine neighbor by the depth of our reciprocating value that we can receive from them. What do they have in their hand that can reciprocate value to me? That's how we understand neighbor. Are they on equal footing as I am? What is in their hand that I have that maybe we can exchange? That's how we understand neighbor. But Jesus describes it and defines it completely differently. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. This is a a well-known passage of Scripture. If you've been with the church for a while, you would have heard of it. This is the 
parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan. So we're going to do things slightly different this morning. Normally I read the passage, I pray, and then we unpack it. But I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm literally going to walk through the Scripture. And we're going to pause every now and then. And I'm just going to unpack a beautiful truth to us that again reminds us that we were made to be transcultural, that this is the very plan of God. This is a direct implication of the gospel. That this isn't something new or nice to have. And so if you have your Bible, Luke chapter 10, we'll start at verse 25. I'll pray for us before we jump in. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is rich, uh, that it is relevant, uh, that it speaks to us today. Uh, We thank you for these ancient words. Uh, We thank you that we can uh, publicly uh, share them with one another. I think of our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world that have to do this in secret. Um, But Lord, we get to do it openly, and so we we thank you for that grace. Uh, We ask that the same Holy Spirit that is at work in those places is at work here. Um, that you would soften our hearts, uh, that you would open them up, that we would see you for who you are. Help us to uh, truly be a transcultural community. Um, And so if we are in the way of that, would you move us uh, so that only you would be seated on your throne. Father, we love you, we praise you. Would you show us through your word our desperate need for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So now remember, my statement is a transcultural community requires a transcultural love. And so we must ask and answer, who is my neighbor? Luke 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. The hymn is Jesus, saying, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I just want to explain here. The, the word lawyer here is very different to maybe how you and I might understand it. You see, when we hear the word lawyer, we, we think a courtroom. We think a judge. But how it is used here, a lawyer was one who understood the law. He understood the law, specifically the the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. This is a person who was unbelievably familiar with it, that it would be confusing for him to ask this question, because he should know the answer. He was the person that people would go to if they had questions about the Scriptures. And so he stands up, he goes to Jesus, and he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, Jesus says, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? I love what Jesus is doing here. See, I often read uh, the, the scriptures. I, I do so, and I really ask the, the Bible questions. And I think we should all do that. We should ferociously ask the Bible questions. Because I believe if you come with an earnest heart to seek God, he will answer them. And so when I read uh, passages like this, where someone asks Jesus a question, and then he, he answers it by asking a question, I go, well, why is he doing that? Jesus, why, why are you doing that? Because, because Jesus is all-knowing. He's all-knowing. He was fully man and fully God, and so he knew everything. In fact, he knew the question that you were going to ask before you even knew it yourself. And so it's almost like, so, so Jesus, why are you asking the question? Why don't you just skip down to verse 37? Just end it, because you know, you know where this is going. But he doesn't. He asks questions. Jesus asks questions. And I believe he did this because Jesus wanted to get to the heart. He always wanted to get to the heart of the issue, to the root of the issue. See, I... I think that in a transcultural community, 
I don't think it's necessary that we need to be fluent in multiple languages. I don't think that's necessary. If you have it, then that's great. And we'll always try to encourage it by singing different songs, praying in different languages. I think it's really, really cool. It's a, it's a great way to display God's creative genius. But I don't think it's necessary to be fluent in multiple languages. In a transcultural community, I believe it's necessary. I think it's vital that we are fluent in multiple heart languages. We need to be fluent in multiple heart languages. That's why I believe Jesus asks questions. He always asks questions. Because he wants to get to the heart. He wants to understand the heart of the man, the heart of the woman. He does it time and time again with the rich young ruler. The Samaritan at the well, he's always asking questions because he wants to get to the heart of the issue. Now, a lot of people would say, well, it's so that the the person that's engaging with Jesus, that they might realize their own heart, that they are in desperate need of a Savior. And I believe that to be true. I really do. But I also think that we see it in the Scriptures because Jesus, as he's doing his ministry, he goes, you know what, there's a movement coming after me. There's a movement coming after me. It's called the church. And so I need to show them how to care for one another, how to shepherd one another. And it's by asking questions. It's by getting to know one another at a heart level. This is, I believe we misunderstand one another because we don't understand each other's heart languages. Many of us will, will get in a room and we'll say the exact same thing. But because we're not listening to one another's hearts, we're not engaging one another's hearts, we miss one another. And so Jesus engages the heart by asking the lawyer what is written in the law. How do you read it? Verse 27, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. The lawyer here quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, what is known as the Shema. The Shema, the the Hebrew word for hear. This is incredibly important. Because in this time and and still today, if you are Jewish, this is is something that you would say every morning. It's It's a prayer that you would say every morning, the Shema. This is how it goes. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign of your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The lawyer quotes the Shema. When Jesus says, okay, listen, I want to get to your heart. I want you to see what's happening in your heart. What what, what does it say? What's written in the law? He quotes the Shema. But he takes it a step further. He adds Leviticus 19 verse 18. Leviticus 19 verse 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Takes it a bit extra. So he quotes the Shema, and then he adds more scriptures to it. Verse 28, And he said to him, this is Jesus speaking, You have answered correctly. 
do this and you will live. You have answered correctly, do this and you will live. You will have eternal life. I believe the lawyer must have looked foolish. Having been made to answer his own question and then be kindly told to practice the answer he just preached himself. How embarrassing. He shows up to Jesus to to try to trick him. And we'll see that in a moment. That his intentions, what was happening in his heart was actually evil. So he shows up to Jesus to try to trick him. And Jesus, Jesus goes straight to the heart. He's not blindsided by words like many of us are. He goes straight to the heart. And so he answers it. And then Jesus calmly, and this is where I say, I believe Jesus had like tons of swagger. Like tons of swagger. Like I see him just chilling and going, okay, go do likewise. Because you've answered correctly. And kind of just turns away and carries on with his disciples. How embarrassing. See, the lawyer had the right answer what I call head knowledge. He had the right answer. He knew what was right. He had this head knowledge, but it had not made its way to the heart. It had not made its way to the heart. Like many of us, we know so much about the Bible. We can quote scripture after scripture after scripture, but if it hasn't made its way to the heart, what value is it? What value is it? See, the lawyer tried to test Jesus, but found himself tested. But it gets worse. It gets worse. Verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Okay, then who is my neighbor? Who who is my neighbor? What he's asking is, how far does this love have to extend? What must a person do to qualify so that I might love them as my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? I believe that this is a question that has been asked throughout history. As churches have been planted, as movements have been started in the name of Christ, we we pause and then we go, okay, hold on. Who is our neighbor? How far does this go? How far does our love have to go? He asks that question. And like I like to say, Jesus takes this and now makes it a teaching moment. He sees this as an opportunity to to teach not only the lawyer, but to those who were around him. Verse 36, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jesus intentionally leaves uh, the man undescribed. The audience, being Jewish, would have naturally assumed that he was Jew. So Jesus doesn't tell us who, who this man is or where he's from, but, but the audience being Jewish, they would have assumed this is a Jewish man. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest, and let me contextualize it for 2016, a, a priest would have been the equivalent of a pastor, all right? Equivalent of a a pastor, one who who leads and shepherds the flock of God. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, I've heard many people go, hold on, listen, don't don't put too much blame on this priest. You see, the the laws back then was uh, a priest was, was not supposed to touch a dead person. You weren't supposed to, because then if you did, then you were, you were unclean, 
And then you were to have to go back and, and, and cleanse yourself. And there was a whole ritual and it was costly. I mean, it took time. You had to buy the things to cleanse yourself. And so they just, they just didn't want to do it. It was like, it's easier just to stay away from dead people. And so that's why the priest just kind of moved along. Because he didn't want to defile himself. And I hear that. But we're told that he was on the other side of the road. So how did he know that that man was dead? He wasn't close enough to see that the man was dead. See, I believe the priest carried on because he didn't want to step into that man's messiness. He didn't want to step into that man's brokenness. See, we're like that. We're like that. We don't want to step into other people's mess. So we just walk on by. We see that there's brokenness there, that there's hurt there, but we just like, you know what? It's a little uncomfortable. I don't know, I don't know if I want to get involved. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until they come and ask me. That's what I'm going to do. Now, I'm willing. I'm willing. Just as long as they send me a message and say, hey, man, uh, can you come help us out here? I'm in a jam. We'll see in a moment that that's not what we're called to do. That's not what we're called to do. But because of our our individualistic society, we don't want to. We don't want to step into other people's messiness, into other people's brokenness. It's too uncomfortable. And so we just walk on by. But then Jesus goes on with the story, verse 32. So likewise, a a Levite, again, let me contextualize it to 2016. Uh, This would be the equivalent of a a deacon, if you're thinking of it in the context of a church. uh, A deacon, one who who serves in the church, in various ministries, whether it's in the worship team, making coffee, leading uh, uh, prayer times. So a Levite, when he came to the place, at least he got close enough. It says that he came to the place. Guys, do you see how words are incredibly important? We miss so much of the scriptures. He came to the place. So he, he, he walked up to the man, looked at the man. It says, and he saw him and passed by on the other side. It's one of those that's like, okay, uh, I'll say a quick prayer for you, and uh, God, God will help you out chairs. That's what the text says he did. He, he walked to him, saw the situation, saw the brokenness, saw that it was messy and was like, you know what, I'll just say a quick prayer and uh, that'll make my heart okay and then I'll just keep going. I find myself doing that time and time again. I won't speak about you. Like I said last week, you guys, I know you're perfect. It's I'm the problem. Um, there's so many cases where I go, you know what, it's just easier to send a text and go, hey man, I, I'm praying for you, brother. When maybe I should pick up the phone and say, hey, c- can we meet? Can we, can we have coffee? To step into brokenness. But it's just kind of easier to go, you know what, ah, oh, it's, This is uncomfortable. This is going to take up too much of my time. What I'm actually doing is I'm questioning, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? 
Because according to this, uh, a neighbor is one that I'm, I'm willing to go 100% for. We'll see that in a moment. But for others, I'll send you a nice scripture. One that I quickly went online. Listen, I'm letting it all out here. Uh, I'll, I'll go, I'll go, okay, uh, he's grieving. Uh, Google, give me verses about people grieving. Copy that, send it through, praying for you, man. But do I, do I pause? Now, I'm not saying that that's bad. That's a great way to find scriptures in the Bible. But, but do I pause, find that scripture, send it to you, call you, and then say, brother, I want to pray with you over the phone. I want to pray this passage with you over the phone. Or am I being like the Levite, just kind of, hmm. I'll pray for you. As Jesus continues to tell the story, the lawyers and his hearers are expecting uh, something different. Something different to what they got. See, they expected the, the threefold rhythm of uh, Hebrew storytelling. If you look through the scriptures, you would see, especially the Old Testament, that there was this, this pattern, this way that they would tell stories. It was a three-rhythm storytelling. And so they were waiting for Jesus to reveal a Jewish layman, a, a, the, the average church-goer, to come and to help this man. And it would make sense because many people were unhappy with kind of the, 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 the church structures at the time. They were unhappy with the priests and the Levites. They felt that they were being taken advantage of. And so to hear a Jewish man shows up, that's what they were expecting. That would have been a slap at the establishment, right? It's like, oh, the, the pastors and the deacons, they didn't make it, but it was just the, the normal church-going lady that came and saved that man. They weren't expecting Jesus to say something else. No one expected him to finish the story the way he did. Verse 33, but a Samaritan. But a Samaritan. At this point, um, I'm sure the disciples haven't been with Jesus knowing that, listen, Jesus is the kind of guy that just says stuff that are left field all the time. I, I can only imagine Peter and John going, okay, um, let's find the quickest exit because we are going to have to flee because Jesus, a Samaritan. But, but a Samaritan. Now, before we continue, I have to unpack who Samaritans were. See, there was a, a, a hate relationship that existed between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. This hatred between uh, Judea and Samaria went back over 400 years, and, and it centered around racial purity. Because while the Jews had been had kept their purity during captivity, the Samaritans had lost theirs by intermarrying with the Assyrian invaders. See, in the Jews' eyes, the Samaritans were compromising mongrels or half-breeds. That's how they saw them. Also, the Samaritans had built a rival temple to only have it destroyed by the Jews. And so you can imagine the hostility that existed between the two. So in Jesus' day, the hatred was ingrained and extremely ruthless. The, the rabbis said that they would often say, let no man eat the bread of the Samaritans, for he, for he who eats their bread 
is as one who eats swine flesh. Is what was said. The ultimate insult came in the Jewish prayer that concluded, and do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. Basically saying that, that the Samaritans, are, they're not worthy of the gospel. Father, don't remember these Samaritans. That's how much we hate them. To add to this fact, since Jesus' day, some Jewish travelers had been murdered in Samaria. Some of the Samaritans had defiled the temple of the Jewish people. It was a, a back and forth, back and forth hostility existing among these people. I mean, it, it, was, so, it was so bad that, that, that some say um, if the man who had been beaten and left for dead, if he had a, like, just a small bit of energy and, and as he turns and he sees a Samaritan, he probably would have said, no, you're not, not you, it's fine, I'd rather die. It was intense. They hated one another. And so the, the Jewish people, the lawyer waiting for, for a Jewish man or woman to be the hero, Jesus goes in verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He had compassion. He stopped long enough to see the brokenness and go, you know what, I'm going to engage. I'm going to show compassion. Despite the hostility that exists between us, despite our history, I'm going to engage with compassion. Making the point that, that neighboring is about stepping into someone's story, into their narrative, despite the color of the skin, their culture, or their socioeconomic class. It's about stepping into their narrative and doing so with compassion. The Samaritan looked at this man and said, this could easily have been me. This could have easily been me. And so I'm going to engage. I'm going to step into this narrative that is not mine. I'm going to step into this man's shoes. And I'm going to engage with compassion. But Jesus goes deeper in verse 34. He says, He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He then set him on his own horse, on his own animal, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, this is uh, two, two days worth of wages, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus goes deeper. He goes deeper. Jesus is saying that if we're truly going to love our neighbor, if we're going to enter into their narratives, if we're going to engage with compassion, it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us. That's why we don't want to do it, because we know the cost is high. Whether it's your time, your treasure, or your talents, it is going to cost you. More so when this person is not like you. When this person is not like you. Because you might have to learn a little bit about their context. Whereas if I'm hanging out with people that are exactly like me, I don't need to learn anything new. I don't need to know their narrative. I don't need to know their history, their struggles, their brokenness. 
but in a transcultural community, we're compelled to do so. And we're compelled to do so with compassion. With compassion. Verse 36. Jesus asks, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? I can only imagine it being difficult for the lawyer to answer this question. But he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. You've answered correctly. The one who showed mercy, the one who showed compassion, the one who entered into the narrative, the one who engaged, knowing that it would cost, he still engaged. Go and do likewise. See, the robbers hurt the man by violence. That's obvious. The robbers, they they hurt this man by violence. But the priest and the Levite, they hurt this man by neglect. They did the same hurt, but it was by neglect. And we run the danger of doing the very same thing by gathering here every Sunday or gathering in our city groups and going, man, this is amazing. Look how diverse this is. We are transcultural, but then to know nothing about the person that's in front of you. To see brokenness and to see messiness, because we all have it. I don't care if you're white or black or colored or Indian. I don't care if you're rich or poor. I don't care if you're educated or not. We are all broken, that we all have messiness in our lives. And we can't tiptoe over one another like, no, this community is awesome, transcultural. Sorry, wait, it's amazing. I'm telling all my friends I got this black pasta. This is great. Sorry, let me just get through here. I, I know. I know this happens. And so to, to be asked the question, so, so, so tell me a little bit about your city group. Tell me about this diversity. Tell me about your neighbors. And so to not step into those narratives, to not engage, are we truly loving our neighbors? Are we truly loving one another? Jesus tells the lawyer, you go and do likewise. Don't be like the robbers. Don't be the, like the priest or the Levite. Be like the unlikely hero. Be like the unlikely hero. The one who engaged with mercy and compassion. Because we, we're not called to define who our neighbor is. That's not our responsibility. We're not called to define who our neighbor is, but, but rather we are called to love our neighbor. And too often we, we're the ones who want to define, well, okay, uh, my neighbor is, is uh, the one that lives um, on this side of the one. Anyone else on the other side, it's, it's just too messy, it's just too broken, I'm not going to engage. We're not called to do that. That's, that's why I say we, we're a, a church plant in the city of Pretoria, Now, Pretoria is big. The city is massive. We're not called to define who our neighbor is. We are called to love our neighbor. To do so with mercy and compassion. 
But, but, but here's the thing. We often read the story, and, and I do that a lot. I'll read the story, and, and then I'll think of myself as the Good Samaritan. And so, and so I'll, I'll walk away with those principles. I'm the Good Samaritan, so what must I do? I must love my neighbor. That's okay, that's what I'm called to do. Because Jesus is saying, I'm the Good Samaritan. Because he says, you should go and do likewise. But sometimes, sometimes I'm the man. That's just being beaten and left for dead. I'm the man that's broken. I'm the man that is in need of an unlikely hero. I'm in need of an unlikely hero. And in our context, in in our individualistic society, middle class South Africa, we'll walk in here and then we'll go, everything's great. My life is, is on point can't wait for question of the day. can't wait to tell people how great my life is. You don't want to be honest and say, I'm the man that's beaten and broken. That my life is messy. My life is messy. Because we want to see ourselves as the good Samaritan and never the man on the side of the road in desperate need of help. We need to be that to one another. We need to be that to one another. Waiting for an unlikely hero. Let me say the, the ultimate unlikely hero is Jesus himself. See, Jesus is like the Samaritan. Jesus is the one who is willing to touch the unclean. Unlike the priest. He was the one who was willing to be the outcast. The one willing to be the unlikely hero. Because he looked at your brokenness and your messiness. He didn't tiptoe around it. He didn't just say, you know what, I'll I'll pray for you and you'll be okay. And being Jesus, he could have. But rather he engages. He steps into our narratives. He does so by coming from heaven and living among us. He engages our hearts, each and every one of us, and and how, how different we all are. How different we all are. And so he speaks these multiple heart languages. I see this happen all the time where someone will say one thing about how they're hurting and then it's like, well, I need to engage this way. The the goal is the same. I want you to see Jesus, but I engage you differently. And someone will come with the exact same issue and I go, because I, I know your narrative. I know your story. You engage differently to get to the same goal. All of us sitting here will tell of different stories of how we met Jesus. If you've crossed the line of faith, if you call yourself a Christian, if we had to come up here one after the other, every story would be different. But you know what is the same? I needed Jesus. I was in desperate need of a Savior. And that's because he was willing to engage our narrative. And he did so with mercy and compassion. He looked and he said, you are my neighbor. You are my neighbor. Despite our differences, you are my neighbor. 
And so Jesus' command to go and do likewise, the answer that he gave to the lawyer's question, we should see this as an impossible one. We really should. If we're going to be honest, we should go, you know what, that's... So Jesus, you're saying I should love everyone? Everyone. Everyone. Think about it, guys. Who is that one person or that people group that you're just like, you know what? No. Not doing it. Not doing it. Because they're racist. Prejudice. Arrogant. They never listen. They think they're better than everyone else. don't define who our neighbors are. In the same way you didn't define that you were born in this generation. That you are here in South Africa with its history. But we are told to go love our neighbors. And so if you're sitting here and you're going, you know what, it's easy to love people that look like me. So that's probably not what he's not talking about that. If you start thinking about those people that you don't want to love, you realize this is actually quite impossible. To have them in my home. I want them to meet my friends. Meet my family. It's an impossible thing to do unless, unless, unless one truly loves God with all his heart, his soul, his body, and mind. If only, only if we turn to God and say, God, you are everything. I love you with everything. Only then, only then will God begin to transform our hearts and to make it like his. Only then, only then if we're willing to, to, to let go and go, you know what, I'm not in control of my own life. I'm not the master of my own destiny. And rather turn to the one who is. God will begin to transform your heart. And as he does that, he will give you the power that you need to go truly love your neighbor. Only then will he allow you to sit in a room like this and go, you know what, I want to step into other people's narratives. It's going to be costly. It's going to be uncomfortable. And to be honest, I actually don't want to. But it's because I love God with everything. I love him with everything. It's the answer that the lawyer gave, the Shema. Only then will God's love flow through us and then overflow out of us so that we might truly love our neighbor. Because a heart that loves God and loves the nations, despite ethnicity or culture or socioeconomic status, that's a transcultural love. That's a transcultural love. Despite where you grew up, your accent, how much money you have, or the lack of it. But I've been offended by them. That's why he says, with mercy and compassion. Because I know the Good Samaritan, he, he probably standing and looking at this man going, you know what, the injustice that has happened to my people because of people like this. It would have been easy to walk away. 
he doesn't. He engages with mercy and compassion. And if we truly want to be a transcultural community, we have to do, as Jesus says, to go and do likewise, knowing that this is impossible without him that we will choose ourselves time and time again if we are not powered by the love of God. Be honest. It's okay. Be honest. Sit here and go, you know what? Look, I'm going to keep it real. If it was up to me, I wouldn't be here. I'd be hanging out with people that look like me. It's okay. But then be willing to engage in that narrative and go, you know what? That's different. I don't know that. Tell me about it. Tell me your history. Tell me your pain, your brokenness, your messiness. Because Jesus engages. And so if he's forming a family for himself from all people, then he calls us to engage. A transcultural community requires, requires a transcultural love. Let's pray. And so, Father, we, we ask that you would, that you would come and, and that you would open up our hearts, uh, that we would be honest with you, um, that we would stand before you knowing that you are aware of our brokenness and our messiness, and yet you still engage us, you still love us, that you remain faithful It's not on condition of whether we did good or not. You remain faithful to us. And so, Lord, uh, my hope is that as we experience your faithfulness and your love, that it would do something in our hearts so powerful that we would be compelled, as Paul says in the book of Corinthians, that we would be compelled to go out and truly be your ambassadors. That as we have this message of reconciliation, that we would, we would engage this broken world with the gospel. And that it wouldn't be about the color of our skin or where we grew up, or where we were educated, how much money we have. That it wouldn't even be about our history, as painful as it is. But rather we would be looking at people who were made in your image and who are in desperate need of a savior. And so that's why we believe one of the most powerful displays of the gospel is a transcultural community. It's where people look and go, this doesn't make sense. How do you guys exist in the same space? Because you shouldn't. History says you shouldn't. And we say our only response would be it's because of Jesus and what he has done on the cross that he engaged with us. He stepped into our narrative and then he died for us. And so, Father, would that be true? Would that be true for us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.